word on veganism, debunking, dispelling, and discussing all things related to the vegan way of life. A word on veganism. Veganism. A way of living that excludes the eating of animals and animal products. Therefore, a vegan diet not only excludes eating of animal flesh, but also dairy and animal-derived products, including honey, gelatine, and whey. Some vegans also don't wear leather, wool, or silk. And as the plant-based lifestyle becomes increasingly visible, more questions relating to it come to the fore. And ironically, in an age of information overload, a lot of uncertainty, untruths, myths, and ill-considered opinions can show up as fact. It's not uncommon to hear, humans need meat to survive. People are omnivores. You're a vegan? What about protein? Or supplements don't actually work. And this one. But don't you miss bacon? I'm Andy Leve, and yes, I am a vegan who is consistently learning. I've been a vegan for years now, and I still consider it a marathon and not a sprint. On this episode of A Word on Veganism, dietitian Lila Brook and endocrinologist Dr. Brad Mervitz unpack the seemingly elusive vegan diet from a nutritional, hormonal, and therefore holistic functioning of the mind and body. When it comes to getting our health and wellness in check, consulting a qualified health professional such as a dietitian is strongly recommended. Dietitian Lila Brooks spoke to me about what exactly her job entails. For a lot of people, they associate a dietitian solely with weight loss. And that is certainly not all that we do. Um, from a clinical perspective, you'll find dietitians in hospitals assisting with the nutritional care of patients who are inpatients or outpatients. Um, in industry, dietitians will be involved with product development um, and also as well in hospitals as well that also deal with food service management, which is special diets for patients as well. And in a private setting, I certainly don't only do weight loss. Um, so people come for all different reasons. Special diets like veganism, for example. Um, we see children, adolescents, adults, babies, um, not so many babies, more older children, but still <laughs> food allergies, sports nutrition. So we see a lot of athletes, people with digestive disorders. So there's quite a large spectrum of the different areas that we cover. Not only do we need to be aware of what we are eating and the quantities thereof, but we also need to be mindful of what is happening to the body internally. Hormones are responsible for the regulation of the metabolism, for growth, reproduction and for sensory movement. If we aren't fueling our bodies properly, all of these functions can be jeopardized, which is why visiting an endocrinologist like Dr. Brad Mervitz would be advisable. Well, endocrinology is the study of hormones and the organs that make them. So the various glands in the body, thyroid, adrenals, pituitary gland, um, the pancreas, and so any disorder within these glands would need to be managed by an endocrinologist. It goes beyond this. We deal a lot with obesity. Um, diabetes is one of the largest parts of our practice. Uh, many people come with lifestyle problems, um, expecting there to be an endocrine disorder. Oftentimes there isn't. It's uh, often related to nutrition, to lifestyle. And so we do have to investigate um, the diet of the patient a lot. We have to investigate how active they are and uh, try and advise them there because most times when someone's complaining of weight gain, there's no endocrine problem. But um, we do see that deleterious lifestyles have an impact on the endocrine system 
And so we need to be equipped to deal with those. And uh, oftentimes we're the jumping on point for many people on a journey that will take them to the nutritionist, to a gastroenterologist um, or other healthcare providers, alternative medical practitioners. Transitioning from an omnivorous diet of eating meat to becoming a vegan means that the body undergoes changes on a nutritional front. How much protein intake is enough when you're not receiving protein from animal products and do protein shakes suffice? I asked Lila and Dr. Brad to explain how our diet affects the optimal functioning of the body. Being protein, um, that's my main concern. Um, mm. What lands up happening very often is if someone is vegan, obviously they're those people who do it properly but I think for the most part a lot of people just cut out the animal protein but don't replace it so for example maybe before they would have a bolognese pasta and now they're having a Napolitana pasta for example um, so it's those sorts of changes where they're not actually replacing the protein source and that's where sometimes problems can come in having said that if someone's conscious of the type of protein and quantity of protein that they're getting from vegetable sources then they're in a much better position so the key when it comes to protein from a vegan point of view is combining a vegetable protein source with a grain. So for example, chickpeas and rice or baked beans on toast. When you combine the vegetable protein with a grain, you are creating more of a complete protein rather than an incomplete protein, which is a better source. In terms of size of that, you know, one would traditionally have a piece of chicken with rice Um, and that's what 125 grams sure and quite a substantial amount of protein whereas chickpeas would you then be needing to consume a whole tin of chickpeas together with vegetables so if you think about say comparing a piece of steak 30 grams of steak which is about a matchbox size Mm. you would need to have about at least half a cup of chickpeas in order to meet that approximately maybe even more so the point is that you do have to have more of it However, having said that, if you are choosing vegan protein sources, the advantage is that you are not having as much saturated fat. So there is a pro there. So that's the thing. I'm not, I'm not at all saying that it's not a good option. It's just a case of doing it correctly. So, yeah, so that is definitely possible if you are conscious of the amount of protein you're having. And really for a vegan, they need to have vegetable sources of protein on a daily basis. So they need to have chickpeas, beans, lentils, Um, soya beans, etc., on a daily basis in order to ensure that they're meeting their requirements. Otherwise, they won't get enough. What is enough? If you look at the sort of classical recommended daily allowance, it's approximately one gram of protein per kilogram. So someone who weighs, say, 60 kilos would need 60 grams of protein a day. And if one considers that in approximately half to three quarters of a cup of chickpeas, you're getting maybe eight grams of protein, if you're lucky. So it's quite a lot of chickpeas. So that is the issue. Uh, It's not not doable, but it does take a little bit more work, Mm. which is why some people who are vegan choose to go for vegan protein supplements. But I don't think that um, necessarily one should always rely on sort of supplements and protein shakes and ignore the benefit of actual food. And that's where a lot of people also fall short. They go, oh, well, taking a protein shake, it's okay. And that's where I want you to come in, Dr. Brad, here is that what are we not seeing? What are the, the side effects, good and bad, internally on a hormonal level? Um, you hear people saying, my hormones are out of whack. And uh, one of the first things that your GP will say to you is, well, let's do some blood tests to see what hormones are doing what. 
And what is your diet? So the diet is extremely important. And the problem is that often GPs do do hormone levels and the levels are normal. And um, so people are stuck because now they know something's wrong, but the blood test can't pick anything up. And that goes to speak to how subtle the abnormalities can be. So someone may have lost weight. They may be feeling thinner, their clothes are falling off them and everything's fantastic, but they actually don't feel well or right otherwise. And the different hormones will be impacted. Protein is vital for normal physiological function. Most mm. of the hormones have proteins as their, as their basis. They are built on proteins in various forms and that's what will dictate what that hormone does. There'll be some additions with uh, carbohydrates and what have you, but that's what hormones are. They're proteins. And all function throughout the body relies on proteins. Now, if you're deficient, if a person is deficient, something has to give. Proteins get shifted from one area of use to another. And uh, eventually you lose, or initially you'll lose lean muscle tissue. So oftentimes people lose weight and much of that will be fat, but at some point you're going to lose the lean tissue and that's healthy tissue. Mm. You need that for basic metabolic function. You need that to stay healthy. And all other hormones, stress hormones may get activated in this situation because you have to degrade those, those proteins. So in order to degrade muscle tissue, you have to release cortisol and cortisol generally in the short term is good. We need it to survive. Sustained high cortisol levels are bad. Mm. Um, stress hormone and stress kills for a reason and this is what's driving it. Now, people will do the cortisol levels, as I said, and it'll be normal. So, you know, you'll think, well, how can it be? But it's a subtle change and it's a change in the context of that person. These macronutrient deficiencies really are problematic and that's why fad diets don't work people will cut things out dramatically not realizing how serious that is not realizing the deficiencies they're making decreasing the energy and they actually feel worse they'll lose weight they'll feel terrible and it's unsustainable so the importance of, of adopting a vegan lifestyle is to make sure that you've consulted with someone with a nutritionist or a dietitian to make sure that you're getting everything that you need um, because ultimately it will impact and uh leaving out even the micronutrients now we haven't touched on that yet the vitamins and the, the minerals which we'll speak about um, these macronutrient deficiencies are the first thing to be addressed I think because that's what will make a person feel terrible first before they start feeling the B12 deficiency because that can take time but when energy levels start waning then, then people will know about it and mm. you're, you're running on empty you're running on fumes as we say so these things need to be addressed and uh, it's only later on that we'll see obvious deficiencies in the hormones or, or shall I say decreases in the hormones so sustained hypoproteinemia will result in as you said abnormalities in menstruation and that's because the body adopts a, uh, a survival instinct and so the least important thing is reproduction so your pituitary will shut down and hypothalamus will shut down um, hormonal uh, cycles that will regulate menstruation and ovulation etc in men you might see that testosterone levels will start to dip off as well because it's just not important anymore and as it worsens and worsens and we're really talking about extreme malnutrition now so the other endocrine systems will start to be affected as well this is a word on veganism and this episode is looking at the vegan diet in other words the effects and effects of the vitamins and minerals that keep the body functioning as best as it can and one such vitamin is B12 now B12 is the biggest and most structurally complicated vitamin it is responsible for nerve tissue health for brain function and the production of red blood cells every minute the human body produces millions of blood cells and these cells can't multiply properly without vitamin B12. In other words, the production of red blood cells is reduced if B12 levels are low. 
The amount of B12 needed for a human varies based on age. So in the US, the National Institute of Health recommends that those who are over the age of 14 should be getting about 2.4 micrograms of B12 a day. Pregnant women should consume 2.6 micrograms. And those who are breastfeeding, 2.8 micrograms. B12 is commonly found in meat products like fish, chicken and pork. Vegans, on the other hand, are often encouraged to take supplements in order to ensure that they are receiving the right amount. So vitamin B12 is very important for many reasons in the body. Um, it helps from the point of view, well, let's rather put it this way. If someone is not having enough, they might experience it in terms of the energy levels, um, can even relate, result in problems with nerve function, etc. But for me, one of the biggest concerns I'd say is from the point of view of heart health, um, that if someone is not having enough vitamin B12, how can it manifest in terms of problems with homocysteine levels? Um, and that can be quite problematic. And what often happens is that you can have genetic, um, I don't like the words mutation because then people think they're X-Men but <laughs> but um, one can have genetic variants which can affect your ability to actually absorb vitamin B12 you don't know you have that, now you become vegan, you're cutting down your amount of vitamin B12 to negligible amounts and that can be quite problematic But what if I'm getting my monthly or weekly shot, Lila? Yeah, I still prefer daily Vitamin B12 is a water-soluble vitamin, so you still should have vitamin B12 daily. So um, if someone is having a vitamin B12 supplement, assuming that they're taking a good quality one, they won't just get expensive urine. However, having said that, your body will absorb what it needs. Okay. So if you have a situation where you are deficient, you absorb more than someone who's completely fine and got all their vitamins all replete. But if you have a situation where you are deficient, that vitamin B12, you will benefit from it quite substantially. Um, and yes, you choose a good quality one. You don't choose one that's got crazy mega doses that your body can't possibly absorb in a million years. Mm. You choose one that is actually close to the recommended daily allowance and is in a form that the body can use effectively. Yeah, there are a few things about vitamin B12. Vitamin B12 needs to be supplemented intramuscularly when people have an absorptive issue. Not every vitamin B12 deficiency is absorptive. So there's a medical condition called pernicious anemia where because of changes that happen in the stomach, a person can't absorb vitamin B12 in lower down in the small intestine. Those people need intramuscular replacement because they can't absorb whatever oral vitamin B12 they take. But for the average person that doesn't have an absorptive issue, they can take an oral supplement. And there's no shortcut from your colon or your small intestines to your kidneys to make the B12 go directly into the urine. If you're making urine with vitamin B12, it means you're absorbing it. So you will be absorbing it and you'll be using what you need. What you don't need will be excreted in excess. Um, so it's important to, to remember that. And, and just as to the function of vitamin B12, it's very important in part of DNA metabolism mm. and synthesis. So when there's a, a deficiency of vitamin B12, DNA is not metabolized correctly. It's also part of what we call intermediary metabolism, which is the way the body constructs various precursors for the metabolic processes and so a deficiency can re result in a buildup of precursors and um, an absence of the end products those end products are necessary for survival mm. and some of the precursors are homocysteine as we've already alluded to and those those do have an impact on cardiovascular well-being you mentioned the nerve issue already um, the the long-term deficiency of, of vitamin B12 can impact on nerve function so it can cause multiple neurological uh, disorders. The commonest thing would be pins and needles in the hands and feet, uh, peripheral neuropathy. 
but um, they can also have hematological abnormalities, so what we call macrocytic anemia. So vitamin B12 uh, is a very important micronutrient and goes beyond just feeling energetic. But the energy aspect is sort of one of the first trigger warnings, would you not say, if someone Mm. is uh, constantly fatigued? But I think also that people can become fatigued on a vegan diet for other reasons. So firstly, iron deficiency, Mm. that's very possible. And secondly, you know, not necessarily from the protein directly, but if one is choosing now, say if someone's cutting out the protein, like I said earlier, and not replacing it with a vegetable source of protein, just the fact that they're basically living purely on carbs in itself will cause their blood sugar levels to be unstable. So say, for example, they're having, okay, this is very extreme, so bear with me, but say they're having like syrup sandwiches or something, you know, they're like, oh, well, it's vegan. Mm. Um, And I've seen that very, very often where people literally, they choose very sort of sugary, refined carbohydrate choices because they feel assured that it's a safe option from a vegan point of view. Um, So that, that is a problem. And we will talk um, more about, uh, Lila, we will talk more about what a, a good diet entails for a vegan. So what are some of the breakfast options we can have, lunch, dinner? Should we be eating three main meals a day? Uh, should we be looking at five m- smaller meals a day? And uh, all of these things are becoming popular, but without, again, the academic information behind it. So that is essentially the point of this particular podcast, a word on veganism, where we are trying to swim through the muck. There's a lot of information, uh, but hopefully uh, you are able to digest it. Excuse the pun. The Big Sawyer Debate. Is soy a friend or is it foe? Well, soya is a good source of protein as it does contain all eight essential amino acids that the human body needs. It's also a rich source of polyunsaturated fats, including the crucial omega-3s and it's cholesterol-free. On top of that, it contains disease-busting antioxidants, B vitamins and iron. Calcium-fortified soy products such as soy milk and tofu also provide significant amounts of this very important mineral. Edamame beans and products made using the whole beans are a good source of fiber, which is important for good bowel health and can lower cholesterol. But as I mentioned, there is a debate around soya and a lot of the critique focuses on phytoestrogens. Dr. Brad elaborates on this. Soy contains something called phytoestrogen, without getting too technical about the different subcategories. These phytoestrogens are plant-based estrogens, and they can, um, they can affect or impact on the estrogen receptor in the body in various ways. Some of the impacts will, be, will mimic estrogen, and some will antagonize or inhibit some of the effects of estrogen. Any hormone in excess can be problematic. So, for example, an excess of estrogen can cause fertility problems, for one thing. It, uh, in men, can cause decreased testosterone and decreased fertility as well. And in fact, we're seeing, worldwide, we're seeing problems with substances called endocrine disruptors, which impact on fertility, amongst other things. Um, so soy has been kind of the poster boy or the poster child for endocrine disruptors. But I must say, 
The evidence is lacking to show that this is a significant endocrine disruptor. We just don't know. Now, lack of evidence doesn't signify evidence of lack. Sure. Right? Um, but we still aren't sure. Um, you'll see that most guidelines aren't, aren't um, using endocrine disruptors from soy as a reason to change dietary recommendations. So I think people that take soy in moderation uh, are no worse off than people that take it, or that don't take it, I should say. Um, there are some perceived benefits to the phytoestrogens as well. Uh, it seems that there may be a decreased risk of obesity, of type 2 diabetes, of certain cancers. Um, cholesterol levels may be low with cardiovascular health. So there are a number of perceived benefits. But again, the evidence is lacking mm. to say that unequivocally this will benefit a person or detriment a person. Moderation is always key. I always preach that. Moderation <laughs> is key. Ooh, but moderation is subjective. <laughs> true. <laughs> that is true. So there is no definitive answer, and hence it being such a controversial topic. The big soy debate is one that is ongoing. And as I said, um, you know, you find it in so many faux vegan meats uh, mm. as well. And that is obviously a topic that we'll also look at in episodes to come here on A Word on Veganism. Faux meat and the use of soy and sodium uh, to recreate <laughs> meat, etc., etc., and what the implications uh, of those are. Uh, do you have anything to add, Lida, when it comes particularly to soy? Yes. So, you know, it, it is obviously very contentious and there are opposing views. Um, I personally feel, yes, everything in moderation, whatever your definition of that may be. <laughs> but um, generally, um, when it comes to the processed soya products, so like the sausages, burgers, mm those sorts of things, those aren't something that I think one should have very often. So if someone's vegan and having it once a week, not the end of the world, it's also quite high in fat. Having said that, um, fermented soy products, so things like tofu, tempeh, which you mentioned, even edamame beans, not that they are um, fermented, but they are at least more um, unprocessed. Um, if you're feeling really brave, there's that um, natto. But ideally, fermented is better. Um, and the benefit when it comes to the soy products is that um, it has all the amino acids that you need as opposed to other vegetable sources of protein, which don't, which is why you need to combine it with the grain. So the soy products, you don't need to combine with the grain to get the full amount of amino acids you need. So that is an advantage. And I think Lala brings up an important point there. Across the board, the fewer processed foods we eat, the better. Generally, food that is highly processed, really, really made, microwavable meals, mm. nutritionally, those are very poor. And uh, mm. those will impact on health. And um, it's not just soy, it's carbohydrates as well, especially people think if they go to any um, food chain out there and pick up one of these microwavable meals, and because it's vegan and it says all natural products, that it's okay. But they're not all natural products and they are processed and it is a poor quality. And those refined carbohydrates are, are terrible in truth and I mean we see the impact of that in terms of diabetes so I mean I think that goes across the board and it's, it's a good point that you brought up there yeah and I think that also what is important is to consider the health halo effect which is essentially that if something is given the impression of being healthy then it is mm. so a good example would be like granola bars fruit juice muffins etc I mean muffins are just cakes that are small and cute but they are essentially little cakes um, so often people have that perception that oh it's vegan that means it's healthy and also by the same token people will choose to become vegan for health reasons mm. so if personally although I 
am very pro people being vegan. I don't believe that being a vegan should be a health choice. I think it should be based on ethical reasons or religious reasons. But I don't think that someone should choose to be vegan because I think they'll be healthier. If they were going that route, I would say it'd be better to be vegan and have fish. On the omega topic, can we delve more into that as well? Because once again, like a B12, like an iron, zinc, it's a crucial uh, vitamin mineral uh, that one then lacks. Yes. So definitely it is important. Omega-3s, they're essential fatty acids. Therefore, they are essential to the body. But from the point of view of non-fish sources, so rather plant or vegetable sources of omega-3s, they aren't as well absorbed or not as easy for the body to absorb. They have Mm. to go through a a longer process that has more sort of intermediary steps in order to get it to an omega-3 point. And not everybody has the sort of biochemical capability in order to do that 100% perfectly. So you still have better luck having a fish-based omega-3. In tablet form? capsule or yeah I mean you could do some people I I have seen many people who are vegetarian or are vegan but they'll take an omega-3 supplement in capsule form Mm -hmm. but obviously the best is from fish and research that's been done has been a bit inconclusive in terms of whether omega-3 supplements actually really really do make a difference still fish is the best option People need to differentiate between supplements for the sake of making of, of achieving your recommended daily allowances and super physiological doses. Mm-hmm. There is no evidence to say that if I take an omega-3, I'm going to be a cleverer person. It doesn't work that way. But you need a, a person needs omega-3s for normal bodily function. As Ala said, essential fatty acids are essential. You need them. You need them for healthy neurological function and brain function. You need them for, they've got an impact in cholesterol as well. These things are important, but supplementing for the sake of supplementing is no good. Supplementing because you need something and you can't get enough of it from your diet, that would be the recommendation. And uh, I, I'm a big proponent of something Lila mentioned earlier, is the best way to get your vitamins and minerals is from food, not from pill form, mm. not from another liquid, but from food. Um, the supplement industry is a multi-billion dollar industry worldwide with very little evidence behind it, very little data behind it, and very little benefit derived from it. And uh, unfortunately, again, it's the health halo. So you think you're taking a supplement that will make you healthier, but it doesn't. And there's a lot of subterfuge out there that's um, perpetuated by the companies, uh, promising the world and delivering very little, but people don't know that. And unfortunately, it's kind of worked its way into allopathic medicine where a lot of doctors are prescribing these things as well and uh, people need to be wise to it and need to know that it's not necessary in many cases and some things are good and some things are bad and you need to kind of see where you are and what your nutritional requirements are for that Mm. very good point and we also see that not only are there a whole range of faux meats as we mentioned earlier and we'll elaborate on this uh, in episodes to come on the Word on Veganism series, but protein shakes as well. Um, Everything from flax to spirulina. And you find that these aren't now an add-on to a meal. They become the meal. Mm. What are the dangers of that? Well, also, I think people um, need to be conscious of what actually contains protein from a vegan point of view. Mm. So when you have something like um, nuts, for example, like people will say, oh, well, I'm having almonds. You mentioned almonds. So I'm getting protein. The actual amount of protein in nuts, not that much. It's more fat than protein. You'd have to have so much nuts to get enough protein that the amount of fat would be just astronomical. So it's just important to bear in mind that 
if you're going to have a sort of protein supplement shake etc it's got to be from a source that actually contains good amounts of protein so if someone is doing soy you do get ones that are sort of more soy based um, I'm always hesitant with that because like dose wise it's hard to control and if phytoestrogens are a concern it's very difficult to manage when you're having a supplement form um, most of them are pea protein which is not terrible but will not be you know if I've never seen one but I stand to be corrected that's say chickpea based or bean based it'll probably taste disgusting maybe that's the reason why <laughs> whereas maybe it's the case with the pea is more of a, like a innocuous flavor but I just don't feel that necessarily peas are the best choice in terms of a protein source. Um, and I feel that if someone is going to get a vegan protein shake, they need to choose one that has various sources. So in other words, maybe it has pea and a few other vegetable protein sources, which they do exist on the market. Dr. Brad, I see you nodding profusely there. Uh, <laughs> are there you know, grave implications of, of taking a supplement in liquid form um, hormonally? If, that, if I'm going to rather not have a meal and have the shake instead... I don't think that there's going to be a major impact per se on the hormones like that, but it's just, it's not a good attitude, a good outlook to adopt where you're going to get food in liquid form. You're not getting enough fiber. You're not getting enough of the other things that a person needs in liquid form. And uh, you do run, a person does run the risk of not getting everything that they need from the supplement. You know, if it's a poor quality protein that's in the shake, so you're just taking in a poor quality protein. So... We need to be discerning about these things. Um, I've seen some of the vegan uh, proteins out there, the protein powders, the pea protein powders. And sometimes I will say that they're lacking in essential amino acids. And, uh, you know, again, people need to be discriminating and need to look into it. There's really no excuses to be ignorant. If a person is going to be, adopt a vegan lifestyle, there's enough information out there, good quality information to know what you need. People are very quick to refer to, they'll Google something, they'll look at YouTube clips, and that's what they make the decisions from. Yes. Um, so, Dr. Uh, Google. Exactly. So about, for example, about five years ago, there was a 16-year-old boy that I saw. Sorry if you're listening. Um, and he was, um, he, the only thing that he would consume was bananas. Um, he literally lived on bananas. He would not eat anything else. And he insisted that that was safe. His mother was obviously a bit concerned. Um, he insisted that that was safe because he had watched a YouTube video of a um, an athlete, I think a long distance runner, who only used to have bananas and therefore that was fine. Mm. And he used to have about 20 bananas a day. I mean, the potassium intake in itself was scary. But he was very insistent that because he had done that, that that was sufficient. And... I really do think that people need to not underestimate the importance of being well-informed, as Dr. Brad said, and also to ensure that they are, just like you wouldn't go and dig through someone's medicine cabinet and find a bottle of pills and just take it, one needs to understand that diet can also have a potentially dangerous effect if it's not handled correctly. We say that, and, and I chuckled to myself when you mentioned the 16-year-old boy who thought, well, I mean, it's a fruit, it's good, it's healthy. Mm. Mm. You know, and um, you read on then, as one should, about cruciferous vegetables. So cruciferous vegetables include broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, bok choy, 
kale. Mm. Um, so those are sort of the main ones. And they do contain very beneficial compounds called sulforaphanes, which help from the point of view of estrogen metabolism. So that's useful from that point of view. However, in the case of some of them, when eaten raw, they can affect thyroid function, which I'm sure that Dr. Brad can um, add to. Um, but specifically, bok choy, kale, and Brussels sprouts shouldn't be eaten raw. And um, in case you think you never eat Brussels sprouts raw, it's actually quite nice. But don't do it. Mm. <laughs> Works in a coleslaw. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, kale juicing and um, smoothies is huge. Raw and veganism is also. Exactly. And I think we're going to see probably more and more thyroid issues the more that the trend continues. Yeah, so kale especially, but um, a number of those uh, those vegetables that you mentioned, they contain what's called goiterogens. So they impact on thyroid function and thyroid size. You mm. may see a very enlarged thyroid in a person that's taking too many goiterogens. And they can actually impact on the ability of the thyroid to produce thyroid hormone in adequate amounts. So beyond just having something that's unsightly sitting in the front of your neck, it can actually impact on, on your health and well-being. So hypothyroidism or an underactive thyroid um, can be... You know, someone's trying to lose weight from their, their vegan diet and they just can't because they're blocking their thyroid function. Alternatively, some people take some of these substances, particularly if they're high in iodine and can cause hyperthyroidism as well. So, you know, again, moderation is key over here. And in this case, it's proper preparation is important because historically we always said for people to get a goiter and to impact on thyroid health from goiterogens, they need to consume enormous amounts but people are doing that now now we're actually seeing that because when you're throwing something in the juicer it's very easy to get those amounts uh, take them in and impact on thyroid function and so you know thyroid dysfunction in terms of hypothyroidism as i've said it can cause weight gain uh, slow cognition also menstrual abnormalities constipation hair loss um, cold intolerance and then hypothyroidism speeds up the metabolism so all the opposite weight loss, jitteriness, anxiety, also hair loss, high blood pressure, palpitations. So it's it's not a benign thing to play around with the thyroid and, you know, people need to be sensible about it. Yeah, well, I mean, the hormones are essentially just chemical messengers, but their messages go all over the body and they impact on very remote tissues. So an abnormality in one gland with uh, one hormonal problem will impact on the whole body. It's very problematic because people don't actually pay enough attention to how their body feels and mm. that's also where a lot of these social media type of influences are problematic people are like oh they feel good I feel good I feel good and they believe it um, that they should or that they do and I see it very often that someone will say um, I'm doing this because I felt good when I did it but when they actually think about it and they realize the side effects they had they realize that maybe they didn't feel as good as they thought mm. and it's, it's quite a common issue and if someone's just not getting enough nutrients enough calories you've been hungry you know how ratty for lack of a better word you can get hangry hangry that's it <laughs> so I mean that, and that can also impact on on behaviours and uh, interactions with people relationships you know people might snap more become a bit more short tempered and what have you um you know, hormonally speaking, you'd be very hard-pressed to say, this is the hormonal disorder here. Obviously, a thyroid disorder is uh, apparent. There might be, as we mentioned earlier, some excess cortisol that can't be detected. But you won't find an obvious hormonal disorder in that that's impacting on the brain unless it's, you know, probably unrelated to the nutrition side of it. But there's no doubt that this nutrition will impact on the way your mind works and your brain works and the way you feel. Well, on that point, I think it's absolutely crucial that we talk about um, meals and how often you should be eating, how many calories we could go on and on, but particularly from a vegan stance, how often and what should we eat, should we be eating more of during the course of the day? Um, 
to be as you know functional as possible and not have uh, these ups and downs and dips in energy sure. from the point of view of how often one should eat as a vegan it's same as sort of a non-vegan person carnivorous omnivorous um, which would be about five to six times a day and you know whether or not one does that as a non-vegan is very much an individual choice but i feel as a vegan one has to work really hard to get the protein in and also as you were saying earlier you have to really really have a lot of legumes to get that protein so it is necessary to eat as frequently as that so if someone is vegan um their calorie requirements will be the same as anyone who's not vegan um for the same level of activity age gender etc mm. but what is important certainly is to be conscious of the composition of the calories so that's where a lot of people falling short they're not eating correctly and so that's important so they need to make sure for sort of a normal sedentary person the sort of average percentages about 55% of their diet would be carbohydrate about 20% protein and what have we got left 25% fat <laughs> yes so that would be sort of a, a sort of normal distribution obviously that would vary depending on the person's activity levels etc but that's ideally how the calorie distribution should be but assuming that if someone's very active or pregnant or um an athlete or a child all those sorts of things will affect that percentage like an ultra endurance athlete will probably have a higher percentage of carbohydrates than they need for example Emphasis on nutrition and optimizing the diet becomes even more intensive during pregnancy while many changes are happening in a woman's body and of course that of the child or children that she is carrying. Unsolicited advice is often heaped on those who are pregnant and it can become even more complicated when the expectant parent is vegan or is following a predominantly plant-based diet. I don't think that plant-based per se is the issue, but certainly as you're saying in terms of balance of the diet, that's a primary concern. However, if someone said to me and I've actually it's not a hypothetical because it did happen, um I had um a client who was pregnant and she said to me that she's vegan, but she wants to ask me whether it'd be better for her to include fish. Mm. Um so if i said that fish would be better for overall health then she would have included it which she did okay. so for the course of the pregnancy she ate fish um it's sorry to disappoint you if you're planning your future pregnancy plans i'm not saying it's impossible and certainly to an extent the baby can get what the baby needs because generally it's a mother that suffers less than the baby calcium gets leached from the skeleton so even if you're not having enough calcium the baby will get what the baby needs having said that there has been research done in terms of starvation um during pregnancy so if we're getting very extreme with low calories and that can be a problem in terms of the baby's development both um regardless of what stage of the trimester that happens and um it's important to just mention that mom needs to make sure that vitamin D levels that she's got good vitamin D levels that she's getting a vitamin D supplement that she's getting a calcium supplement that her iron levels are good these are all um problem minerals that say in in vegans things that need to be assessed frequently and ensure that uh, they're getting an adequate amount and so this can impact on the baby so that's an important thing to monitor throughout the pregnancy and uh if the insistence is there that baby's going to be vegan as well then the child and there there is research showing that children can grow normally and have normal growth patterns as vegans but there often needs to be a supplement the, the, the children do need to be supplemented and So it's problematic if some people are completely opposed to fortified foods or supplements in their diet and they don't want to give that to the child. 
because then we might start to see micronutrient deficiencies in the children and growth abnormalities. We've all been there, obsessing over that slab of chocolate, rushing to get home to binge on a bag of chips. When the craving hits, it demands to be answered. Cravings are typically considered to be linked to more than just a cheat. Does a craving mean that you are lacking something nutritionally or that your hormones are out of whack? What if I crave a piece of meat? I find that very often what vegans crave is the umami taste, you know, that fifth taste. So you get salt, sweet, bitter, salt, say that? salty, sweet, mm. bitter, sour, and umami, yes, that I did to get all of them. I'm not thinking about it that way; it gets confusing. But yes, all five tastes. So umami is um, sort of quite hard to define. It's sort of a savoury taste that um, gives a sort of a, a very strong mouthfeel. So th- if you think about. Um, say when you eat some chips, that little bit of slimy residue sounds gross on the top of your palate, that kind of feeling, that moorishness. Very often it's, for example, MSG is basically adding umami. Um, so often food manufacturers try to add that to their food to add to give that sort of flavor. So in terms of foods that have it, there's there are vegan sources of umami, for example, like tomatoes and fermented soy type things, but meat is a big source of umami. So I find that very, very often vegans just get frustrated with um, the bean legume kind of vibe and they just want something that gives that umami hit. Um, and often having also mushrooms are a big umami source. So often mm. having like a mushroom burger, <laughs> that's not just a mushroom on the roll, can really help to satisfy their craving. But that certainly is a big part of umami in this, definitely. In terms of moving from a more omnivorous to vegan lifestyle, um, I think that what is important is to do it gradually and um, sort of mindfully. There's a lot of those Netflix documentaries where people will um, watch it and they'll say they'll never eat meat again. Mm. I definitely do think that that is the case, that people, it becomes very much like a, a trendy thing. And like anything in health, it shouldn't be done for trends. So it's important to be mindful, to be conscious of the process and to do it gradually. Then along the way to make sure that you are changing in a way that is cautious. So in other words, for example, if you're going to cut up meat, what are you going to replace it with? If you're going to be going from vegetarian to vegan, you need to make sure that the same protein sources are still included. But yeah, that'll be my ideal. First go to vegetarian, then move to vegan. On that note, gastro issues, if you're having too much of the cruciferous vegetables, too many legumes, the gut and gut health, aren't those also pertinent issues? So definitely legumes are very important for gut health from the point of view of the kind of fiber in them for gut bacteria. Yes, a lot of people do find that they get very bloated from the cruciferous vegetables and the legumes. It's important to make sure that that's also introduced slowly, not to go absolutely crazy and have now tons and tons of legumes and cruciferous vegetables. Chew them well. Yes, your mom was right. And to also make sure that if you're doing beans that are dry beans, to soak them, rinse them, re-soak them and then boil them. And then that helps also to lose a bit of the bloating effect. In terms of blood tests, um, one should be cautious of doctors that... You know, I always say it's like the dartboard. So they put the blood form against the wall and throw darts and whatever it hits those, the blood tests you have to do. Mm. There's no need to go overboard in terms of blood tests. 
um, it may be worthwhile just to check vitamin D levels, to check iron levels, and to check a hemoglobin, possibly vitamin B12. More than that, I wouldn't suggest, and I certainly wouldn't suggest that you do them routinely. If a problem pops up, if a person is not doing well, if there's any concern about a condition, that's when one should do blood tests. But to go randomly screening the endocrine system is wasteful. It's a waste of money. It's a waste of time. So I wouldn't recommend doing that unless there's something that particularly points the doctor to think, oh, maybe there's an endocrine disorder over here. I think the important thing in transitioning is to do it uh, sensibly, and um, I think we can't undervalue the role of a dietitian in this in this regard. Yay! Woo! Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> so um, again, people shouldn't just take an extreme lifestyle and think they're mm. going to do it on their own. There's no shame in in getting advice and in asking for help uh, to do it sensibly to make sure that people do stay healthy because there are health benefits, but uh, only if it's done properly. In this episode, food for thought and practice was the theme. Nutrients can affect the hormones and overall functioning of the body. And so being informed and putting that into practice is crucial for your well-being. Researchers at Oxford University have found that cutting meat and dairy products from your diet could reduce an individual's carbon footprint from food by up to 73%. And on the next episode, we look wider than personal well-being as we focus on veganism and the environment versus the meat industry and its effects on sustainability. Thank you for listening to this podcast, A Word on Veganism. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review it on your favorite podcast app, lifepodcasts.fm.